Ephesians 4 and following. Hear the word of the Lord. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we praise you this morning for your glorious grace given to us in Christ. And as we open up the feast of your word, we ask that you would feed us, that you would satisfy our souls with the riches and the abundance of Jesus. And I pray that you would guard my mouth from error and you would allow these people here to hear a better sermon than the one that is preached. That your word would go forth and it would in fact build us up, bind us together, that we might delight in the supremacy of of Jesus Christ together. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, Restoration Church. Yes, it's a bit of an exodus here on Thanksgiving weekend, uh, but we do praise God that we get to gather and uh, feast upon Jesus. My name is Joey. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, If I've not met you, I preach about once a month until Nathan goes on sabbatical in a couple months, and I'll preach a little bit more often. Uh, But I have the joy of preaching Ephesians 4 this morning, and uh, this past week, obviously, was Thanksgiving Day on Thursday, and so one of the things I did is I woke up that morning, and I was just I was giving thanks to the Lord uh, for several of the ways this church has helped me love Jesus more over the past nine years, and I took some time to text some uh, folks in my community groups and just let them know how much I love them and how much they have served me. And, and so with permission, I share the response of my community group leaders that I have the privilege of of learning from David and Hannah, he responded back and said, Hey, Joey, thank you for the sweet message. I'm so grateful for the ways the Lord has used you and Paige to speak into mine and Hannah's lives. And another brother responded with, Thanks, brother. I'm thankful for your desire to help point me to Christ in every aspect of my life. Happy Thanksgiving. And I think those little interactions show us a lot of what Paul's talking about as we move into Ephesians chapter 4. 
the church body helping one another delight in Christ. And so far in chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians, uh, we have seen all that God has done, is doing, and will do. And so over the last several weeks, we've been enjoying and exploring the unsearchable riches of all that we have in Christ. God has, we've seen Paul unfolding God's eternal plan, as Nathan said so many weeks ago, the Christocentric cosmic recreation of the world, uniting heaven and earth. And the centerpiece of Jesus' work is the local church. Universal church made visible in the local church where Jew and Gentile once separated are now brought together in one body displaying the manifold wisdom of God's surpassing love. And so chapters 1 through 3 focus primarily on our identity. They explain who we are in Christ. Well, chapters 4 through 6, we take a turn. There's a hinge, as it were. And chapters 4 through 6 focus on our action. They exhort us how to live for Christ. And this, this makes sense because if you remember back in chapter 2, Paul clearly said we're, we're saved, we're reconciled to God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by works. But then if you look at chapter 2, verse 10, what did he say? You're saved for good works. And so now Paul is simply explaining these good works that we were saved for. So we do not pursue good works out of a deficit to pay God off but out of joy to enjoy our fullness in Christ. That's what Paul is getting at. And so as Nathan said, keep this in mind. As we enter into chapters 4 through 6, it's not like we were preaching all these grace sermons and now we're turning legalistic. That's not what we're doing. We're simply trying to unfold God's word as it's been given to us. So Paul is not all of a sudden now adding these dull, boring commands to like minimize our joy. It's not what he's doing. He's calling us into the freedom and the fullness and the joy of our calling, of our hope, inheritance, and power that we have in Christ. So with that in mind, let's turn our attention to Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. And here's the main idea Paul is driving out in these verses. Our unity in Christ and our diverse gifts from Christ help us build up the body of Christ. Or more simply, unity in diversity builds maturity. Unity in diversity builds maturity. And as we unpack that statement, let me give you, Restoration Church, three encouragements. Three encouragements. Encouragement one, Restoration Church, let's maintain our unity in Christ. Number two, Restoration Church, let's celebrate our diverse gifts from Christ. Number three, Restoration Church, let's pursue Mutual maturity to the fullness of Christ. So first, Restoration Church, let's maintain our unity in Christ. Look there, verses 1 through 3. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance in love. Eager to maintain the unity of spirit in the bond of peace. So Paul is now urging these Christians in Ephesus to act a certain way, and his exhortation hangs on that word, therefore. So we were dead in sin, but now alive in God. Therefore. You were enslaved to sin, but God has set you free in Christ. Therefore. 
We were condemned in sin, but now God promises to show and lavish the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. Therefore, you were separated from God and cut off from his promises. But now God has brought you near in Christ. Therefore, before the foundation of the world, God chose you and adopted you and has given you every spiritual blessing in Christ. Therefore. See, we need to realize all that becomes before the therefore informs all that comes after it. And because of the therefore, Paul's commands are not just a burden restricting us, but they're a privilege to enjoy. And so to walk in a manner worthy of our calling does not mean we have to live in such a way we try to laboriously earn God's favor. Paul is saying, no, 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 in Christ, you have received God's favor, now live in such a way to show the worth of that love. So the position of being in Christ leads to the practice of walking like Christ. And what does that look like? Paul tells us, humility, gentleness. Patience, forbearance in love. And it's vitally important to note these four things listed by Paul are not abstract values. They are a person. They are Jesus Christ. He is the definition and the portrait of humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance. Think of Christ with me. Instead of holding on to the riches in heaven, he humbled himself, putting on the rags of men. Instead of seeking vengeance upon those who sinned against him, he was gentle, telling them, take my yoke, for it is light. Instead of fighting for his own agenda, he impatiently endured the cross set before him, saying, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Instead of insisting of his own rights and forbearing love, he laid down his life. Only... Only when the love of Christ fills us and controls us will these things mark us. In humility, we'll consider others better than ourselves. In gentleness, like our Savior, we'll speak and act with kindness and compassion. In patience, we know how patient God is with us. And so, when long-suffering, we'll put up with the faults of others and be slow to anger. And forbearance will embrace what we find strange in others because we know ourselves we're strange. And we'll refuse to demand perfection from others knowing we ourselves are not perfect. So do you see what Paul is doing here? He's not calling us to a list of commands, but to a love of Christ. Remember what he just said in chapter 3, be rooted and grounded in what? Be rooted and grounded in what? Love. Paul didn't change his mind. He's doing the same thing here. For my non-Christian friends, I wonder if this is the way you think about Christianity. There is a common misconception that Christianity is primarily about morality. What we should and should not do. The thought process goes something like, the Bible is a book filled with rules. Jesus was a pretty good guy who kept those rules. And so, the Bible tells me to be like Jesus and keep the rules. And if I do that, good enough then I'm a Christian. But that's not what Paul is saying here, and that's not what any of the Bible says. A Christian is not someone trying to keep the rules. A Christian is someone who is in 
Christ. So a Christian is someone who realizes that the standard is not just good enough, but perfection. And we realize we're not perfect. That's the bad news. But the good news is Jesus is perfect. And when you trust in Him, not by works, but you trust in Him alone, His perfection becomes your perfection. He met the standard. And in Him we find our perfection. And so, Christianity is not based on what you do, but what Christ Jesus has done. And so, if you're here and you're trusting in your efforts, your good works to earn God's favor, can I plead with you to not trust your behavior, but to trust Christ. He alone is sufficient, and He alone is enough. He perfectly and freely loves all who would come to Him and trust in Him alone for salvation. For my Christian brothers and sisters, Remember that your practice flows from your profession of Christ and being possessed by Christ. Obedience, God-honoring obedience is always a response to grace. Paul saying, you are in Christ, you're in the family. Now act like it. So sometimes my daughters will go riding their bikes alongside with Paige and myself. And there's one hill in particular that gives them trouble sometimes. And so, as an encouraging father, I will loudly say to them, there's no quit in craft. You can make it. Now, what am I saying? I'm saying, listen, you're part of the craft family. We don't quit. That's altogether different than I were to say, if you make it to the top of the hill, you're in my family. Right? The first one is a labor of love. It's a labor of love. It's a labor from identity. The second one is a labor of guilt and shame, striving for an identity. Paul calls us and tells us we are to walk out our salvation because of God's love, not to earn it. And in verse 3, Paul goes on. He tells us another way to walk worthy of our calling. Verse 3 tells us, To be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice that it's unity of or from the Spirit. Unity is something we realize and maintain, but we do not create it. The Spirit does. The Spirit unites us to Jesus Christ and causes us to walk in humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance and love. And the unity Paul is talking about here is what? Unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And who is the bond of peace? Look at chapter 2, verse 14. Jesus Himself is our peace. Every barrier is overcome by a rugged cross and empty tomb. So right now, in heaven, there is an occupied throne. And right now, on earth, every Christian... Their soul is indwelled with the Holy Spirit. And because of that, the core of our being is knit together in Christ. He is the glue. He is the bond that brings us together. That's what Paul is saying. So unity comes not primarily from what we do, but from who and whose we are. Unity is not a burdensome struggle to reach a certain standard, but a call to realize more and more of who we are in Christ. 
So this means unity alone is not the goal. Unity in Christ is the goal. Unity in Christ is the goal. So look at verse 13. Paul says this. It says, we, we work this out. We strive until we all attain to the unity of faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God. So true unity comes from looking at and believing in Jesus. True unity comes from not believing anything, but by holding fast to the main things. There are some things that we can disagree about. There are secondary issues that we need not divide over. Believe it or not, you can actually disagree on things and not cause division. Do you know that, beloved? We can disagree. I know it's hard to believe in these days and times, but we can actually disagree on some things and not have to be divided. But our efforts to maintain unity must not come from minimizing truth or from doctrinal indifference. We have to think deeply and rightly about the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and the church he purchased with his blood. The unity Paul's talking about comes from a shared faith and knowledge of Jesus. And so if you have ever wondered why in the world Restoration Church has a statement of faith and church covenant, here's one of the reasons why. They help maintain and promote our unity. Do you see that? So our statement of faith sets forth the primary things we believe. And our church covenant sets forth what we say it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of Jesus. And so this is why we have these things to to help us live in a way which Paul is calling us to. And so the church in her unity is always centered upon Jesus. Our unity helps us see and savor Jesus, and it shows the beauty and the brilliance of the triune God. Remember what Paul said in Ephesians 3.10. What the, the church displays what? The manifold wisdom of God. And that's what Paul goes on to say. Look at verses 4 through 6. Paul says, There is one body, and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. So notice how Paul begins this. He says there is one body and one spirit. Paul is not describing what could be. Paul's describing what is. His language is not aspirational but actual says we are called to maintain the unity we have. Did you notice the repetition of one in this passage? Seven times Paul lists our oneness factors. So there's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. So Paul is telling us that our unity points to and is found in God Himself. One God, three persons. Unity of God the Spirit, verse 4. God the Son, verse 5. And God the Father, verse 6. See that? So the Holy Spirit places us in the one body, the church, and guarantees our one hope, our future glory with God Himself, together with all His people forever and ever. There's one Lord, Jesus Christ, our Savior. There is no other name under heaven by which man must be saved. 
except Christ the Lord. And there's one faith, the gospel, the body of truth that is revealed by God and fully contained in the scriptures. The truth and teachings of Christianity are not soft, squishy, plastic, molded by each generation's desires. One faith, Jude says, contending for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. One baptism. Baptism symbolizes our union with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. In baptism, we publicly show that we're turning from our sins and trusting in our Savior. We're declaring the one faith, the gospel, and the one Lord Jesus, and are incorporated into the one body, the church. One Father, who is sovereign over all things, working out His glorious purpose with the Spirit and the Son. Here's Paul's point. The church is marked by unity because we have a God and gospel of unity. Here's what that means. A divided church lies about who God is and what the gospel does. Do you see that, beloved? A divided church lies about the character of God and the nature of the gospel. Paul desires unity. Again, not just for unity's sake so we can all sing kumbaya and get along. He desires it for the glory of God. For our gospel witness and our soul's gladness. And so Restoration Church, I want to say, I love you and I am so thankful for you. Uh, We are not a perfect church. I promise you that. But, by God's grace, we are a church marked by gospel unity. We have walked through some hard things together as a church family. So we've had messy and complex restorative church discipline issues that we've had to walk through. There's been confusion or misunderstanding about why we would or wouldn't do things that that matter personally and deeply to you. Add that to the nature of our ministry here in northwest Washington, D.C., where by the grace of God, for the glory of His global kingdom, we get to see people come in and move out all the time. Add that to the radically countercultural things we actually believe. And there's all kinds of opportunities for division. Add that to, if you think about every single members meeting, is an opportunity for division. Every single one of them, where we discuss and talk about certain things. And yet, by God's grace, really the only disagreements we have had has been when you, church, want to give away more money than the elders initially recommended. Praise God! Those are the types of divisions I'll take. I'll pray for those types of disagreements. So thank you, Restoration Church, for being a joy to pastor. We have unity, and I praise God for that. Even where we disagree sometimes, we still have unity because it's Christ, not merely our agreements that hold us together. May we pursue that and maintain it all the more. And as we do, let's realize the greatest danger of our church is not out there. The greatest danger of our church is unrepentant sin in here. The greatest danger of our church is not the culture, is is not what the schools teach, it's not that. The greatest danger of our church would be a member putting his or her personal preferences above gospel priority. That's the greatest danger. 
So, beloved, let's continue to walk in a way to maintain unity. And, and again, look at the text. What, what's the first word in verse 3? What's that first word? Eager. Eager. Paul says we are to be eager to maintain unity. Unity is not passive. Unity is not just sitting back and taking in. Unity is making every effort, doing everything we possibly can in whatever role we have to diligently maintain our unity in Christ. So what is one way you can do that this week? What is one way you can eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? Maybe that's as you pray through the membership directory. You come across the first person you don't know that well and you just reach out to them. Maybe it's confessing an area of pride that's resulted in complaining or grumbling. Maybe it's this week as you go to a community group, you're more open and honest and interested in others. Maybe it's repenting of harshness to your children, to your spouse. Maybe it's intently looking for ways to encourage. Go out of your way to encourage another, not critique them. Maybe it's pursuing unity by joining this church or another gospel-believing church. There's a membership class next Sunday after church. Maybe you pursue unity by joining this church. If you want more, come talk to me about that. No matter what, let's pursue unity. And if there's a brother or sister that you're holding a grudge against, that you're bitter towards, that you're resentful of, can I call you to repentance? And can I ask you to realize that Christ Jesus died for that brother or sister and Christ Jesus rose again so that you could be one with him or her. And so the call to repentance is a call to lavishly enjoy the oneness Christ bought for his bride. Whatever it is, let's eagerly maintain the unity of, that's ours in the Holy Spirit, in the bond of peace, which is Christ himself. And as, as we do that, realize our unity is not the same as uniformity. God is not calling us to sameness. He's calling us to celebrate our diverse gifts from Christ as well. So Restoration Church, let's celebrate our diverse gifts from Christ. Look there at verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So Paul starts with that word but, contrasting what he's just said. So Paul's concern for unity is not uniformity. It is not sameness. It is not blandness. His call for unity is balanced by an emphasis on diversity. We are to be unified in our pursuit of Christ, but not uniform in our gifts and abilities and personalities. Notice what he says. Grace was given to who? Each one of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. This does not refer to different levels of saving grace, as if some of us are more saved than others. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul is talking about various gifts given to the members of his church. So we can think of this as serving grace. Grace given to us so that we could serve those around us. Paul says it this way in Romans 12. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. So that's what verses 7 through 11 are about here. So verse 8, Paul quotes Psalm 68, which is a psalm of the triumphant Lord. 
And so Paul is saying, listen, Jesus is the fulfillment of that song. He is the conquering king who takes the spoils of victory and gives him to his people for his glory and their good. And then Paul goes on and explains, well, if he ascended, I need to explain that he also descended. So Paul says Jesus, Jesus descended. That is, speaking of the incarnation, God in the person of Jesus Christ coming to earth. And then he ascended to heaven where he has all authority. Remember what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1. Above every name that is named, Jesus is. Above all rule, authority, power, and dominion. He has all authority. And Jesus promises to build his church. And how is he going to do that? By giving gifts to the members of his body. Paul is calling us to embrace and celebrate our diverse gifts while cultivating unity. And so, as we've said over and over again in this series in Ephesians, the church is bound together, not by ethnicity, not by race, not by being rich or being poor, not by personal uh, ability, not by musical ability, not by political affiliation, none of that. The church is bound by the Spirit of God, uniting us to the Son of God, who gives every one of us diverse for the body of Christ. So, Restoration Church, let's celebrate our diverse gifts from Christ. So don't think that you are better than another member because you have a gift they don't have. Because guess what? They have something you don't. And just like the human body needs both the eyes and the elbows to function properly, we need each other to function properly. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, in, in one verse, he says it this way. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? So think about that. If all of our giftings were the same, if, if every ear were an eye, we might see the birds, but we couldn't hear them sing. If every nose became an ear, our hearing wouldn't necessarily get better, but we would lose the joy of smelling apple pie. We need each other. Christian brother and sister, you are uniquely graced by Christ for his body. You are uniquely graced. You are not an accident to the body of Christ. No member of this church is inferior or insignificant. We need you, brother, sister. We need you to be who you are in Christ and faithfully exercise your gifts from Christ. We need that. And your gifts were given not just for personal satisfaction, but for the building up of the body. And again, I praise God I praise God for the way so many of you do this. Think about all the gifts that are in our church. Some of you have the gifts to patiently and diligently and clearly teach the children. While others of you are more gifted to disciple adults. Praise God, we need both. Some of you are gifted with a bent toward mercy ministry and caring for the impoverished. And some of you are are gifted more with a bent toward evangelism and sharing the gospel with the lost. Praise God. Some of you have the gift to make beautiful music. Others of us have the gift to make a joyful noise. Right? Praise God. How boring would it be if I didn't clap off beat? It's a gift for you, beloved. 
Some of you have the gifts to lead community groups. Others of you have the gift to host them so they have a place to meet. Some of you have the gift of running cables and setting up signs. Others of you take them down. Some of you are gifted extroverts, can talk to a wall. Others of you are gifted introverts and can listen patiently and kindly. We need all of it. And I could go on and on. And here's, here's what's important to notice. Not every gift will be publicly known and recognized. In fact, most of the gifts in our body will never publicly be known and recognized. Just like, think about how often do you talk about your pinky toe? It's needed, it's helpful, it's useful. So it is with our body. And so, just because your gifts aren't publicly recognized does not mean they're any less valuable to the health of our church family. And so let's praise God for the diversity of our gifts and praise God that people are different from you. That's a good thing. It's a good thing. And one of those gifts that Jesus gives to the church is found in verse 11. Look at verse 11. Jesus gave to the church the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds or the pastors and teachers. So there's a lot of ink spilled on these verses and what they mean and how they function in the church today. I'm not going to go down that path because I don't think that's Paul's main point. I think Paul's main point is here's how he, Christ equips his church. And he gives, what does he give? He gives apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. What's the one thing all of these officers of these ministries have in common? They're ministries of proclamation of the word. All of these proclaim God's word to the people of God. And so no matter how we interpret these five offices, Jesus gives to his church qualified leaders to proclaim the word of God to the people of God. And so at Restoration Church, that primarily belongs to the elders, not only, but primarily to the elders, myself, Nathan, Chris, and Nick. But notice why we're to teach God's word. Look at verse 12. Let's read that together. Why did he give it? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So the elders faithfully proclaim the message and make sure that message is faithfully proclaimed as it builds up the church. That leads me to my third encouragement. Restoration Church, let's pursue mutual maturity to the fullness of Christ. So we maintain our unity, we celebrate our diversity as we pursue mutual maturity. So as we read this passage, did you notice how many times Paul uses not individual but communal language? Do you notice that? So body of Christ, verse 12. Until we all attain unity, verse 13. So that we may no longer be children, verse 14. We are to grow up, verse 15. The whole body joined together, verse 15. The body grows, verse 16. Paul is not addressing just individual Christians, but the whole church. Paul is calling us, Paul is calling the Ephesians, Paul is calling us away from individualism and consumerism. Your life, Christian brothers, is not individual and isolated, but corporate and connected. To quote another, in Christ, we belong together. 
In Christ, there are no Christian islands. We belong together. So in a context like ours, a maturing, faithful Christian who is not meaningfully connected to a healthy church body and under pastoral care of that body is about as common as a square circle. So Paul is saying every Christian needs gospel leadership to care for them and equip them and gospel community around them. That means the church is not depend on the leaders to do everything. The leaders to are equipped, the saints, and all of us together as one big family. One big family help each other and build each other up to Christ-like maturity. So it's, it's been said that churches can easily become like a football game. Hundreds or thousands of people who need some exercise watching 22 people in need of rest. That's tragic. But if we're not careful, that, that's what can happen. We are summoned by Jesus not to selfishly take, but to selflessly give ourselves in love. The church is not meant to be a place where we show up and consume. The church is meant to be a people we covenant with to serve each other. God's design is not that we live disconnected from the body. And God's design is not that we leech onto the body, taking but never giving. Every Christian, every member of the church has a vital role to play in serving and strengthening the body of Christ. That's Paul's conclusion. Look at verse 16. The whole body, the whole body, joined and held together by every joint, that is every joint, with which it is equipped when each part, that means each part, is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The body is healthy only when every joint and every part is working properly. This passage is not calling you to go have more intent devotional times by yourself. To go spend time in prayer by yourself. That's good, or can be good. But that's not the aim of this passage, beloved. This is not a call to individual holiness, but corporate holiness in Christ. That's the goal, mutual maturity. As Paul says in verse 13, the saints are equipped to build one another what? Until we all attain mature manhood. Until we all attain the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. All means all. There's no fancy Greek going on there. It simply means all. So that means maturity is not set apart just for the pastors or just the community group leaders or those that really love Jesus. No, it's all. And what is the, this maturity? The fullness of Christ. Maturity is not some of Jesus all the time. And maturity, maturity is not all of Jesus some of the time. Maturity is all of Christ all of the time. Verse 15, what does he say? We are to grow up what? In some ways, we are to grow up when it's convenient. We are to grow up when we like it. We are to grow up in what? Every way. 
into him who's the head into Christ. Maturity is about growing up in Christ with all of your life, head, heart, and hands. It's not just knowledge about Jesus, but a love for Jesus so much that his grace changes you one degree of glory to another. And you're transformed into his image. Maturity looks like Jesus. And this is really good news because Jesus is the fullest, most alive, happiest human who has ever lived. See, we often think the, mature, the call to maturity is like the call to eat broccoli. We know it's good for us, but man, it's just not that enjoyable. Maturity is not a call from joy. Maturity is a call deeper into joy, to the fullness of Christ. And there's a battle, as verse 14 tells us, there's a danger. Winds of false doctrine, human cunning, craftiness, and deceitful schemes wage war against us. Everywhere we turn, we hear false messages. So just this past week, I noticed one of my daughter's toys was made. I think I took a picture of it. You can put it up. Or not. There it is. It was made by Universe. Now, I don't want to get too picky, but there's a sermon in there. What is the sermon? You are the center of what? The universe. Again, I don't want to get too picky, but we have to realize everywhere around us, literally everywhere around us, things are shaping and fighting for our affection. Every TV commercial you see, every book you read, the social media you consume, the hopes and expectations you hear those around us, they're all vying for salvation and happiness. That's what Paul's talking about. So what are we to do? Verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love. Beloved, what do we do? Let's read it. What do we do? Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into Him who is the head in Christ. So instead of being swayed by the winds of culture, we speak the truth in love. We need truth and we need love. Because truth without love is mean, it hurts. And love without truth is mushy, it lies. We need truth and love, conviction and kindness. And where is the most potent combination of these ingredients? Well, verse chapter 1, verse 13 tells us, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. The truth is the gospel, the most loving message you'll ever hear. Now drop down to chapter 4, verse 20 and 21. Paul goes on, that's not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you've heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. So the truth is in Jesus, the most loving person you'll ever meet. So truth and love come together in the person and the work of Jesus the Christ. And so we speak the truth in love, we humbly yet boldly speak the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Or to say it another way, we pursue mutual maturity by mutual gospeling. We're to mutually gospel one another. And so Paul is telling us, listen, you're not just recipients of redemption, but you're instruments in the Redeemer's hands. Most of the ministry done in this church is done by you. It is not done by me, Nathan, Chris, 
Nick, the deacons. Those are vital gifts and roles, but most of the ministry is done by you as you speak God's word to one another, reminding each other of your identity in Christ and the hope that awaits in heaven. So we need, brothers and sisters, to patiently draw us out, don't we? We need dear friends who love us enough to peel back layers of selfishness, pride, ego. We need people to remind us that Jesus died for our sins, all of them, when we've done something so bad we don't think God could forgive us. We need a caring sister to lift up our heads in time of darkness and depression to remind us of the light of Christ, to remind us that He rose again, He is reigning and He's returning, and one day all tears and fears will be gone. We need a brother to pray for us when our faith is shaken. We need people to listen when it feels like nobody cares. Sometimes we simply need another trusted brother or sister to sit there and not know what to say. Because we don't even know what to say. And we need friends around us, brothers and sisters in Christ, to celebrate with us when things are going well and to spur us on all the more. We need someone to simply... Listen and be there and counsel and encourage. We need a community empowered by the Spirit of God, focused on the Son of God, anchored in the hope of the Word of God. And let's be honest. This type of community does not look like an Instagram feed. This type of community is not where everything is perfectly staged and filtered. But it's more like a messy children's coloring book. Colors and lines all over the place. Some of the pages are ripped. People often ask me, Joey, how's your church? I'm like, praise God, it is a beautiful mess. That's a good thing. It's a good thing. So let's not pretend otherwise. Let's embrace the grace of Christ as we walk with one another through the, through the trials, through the triumphs, through the happy times and the hard times. For my non-Christian friends, I, I hope that you see out of this. You don't have to have it all together before you come to Christ. In fact, if you wait to have it all together before you come to Christ, you'll never come at all. Don't let your sin and your shame and your struggles keep you from Jesus and His people. We invite you to come with us as we work out our salvation, helping each other in our sin, our shame, our struggles, as we look to Christ He's the one who paid for our sin. We don't have to clean it up. He's the one who rose again. So now we don't have to worry about our shame. We're covered in His righteousness. Would you come this morning? And beloved, it's important that we realize this type of community does not happen from convenience, but from devotion. From devotion to Christ and His people. If you only show up to church when it's convenient, if you only go to community group when you have nothing else going on, if you always wait for someone else to initiate that discipling relationship, both you and your fellow members will be weakened. We need your diverse gifts to grow into Christ-likeness. And you need ours. So here are some questions to consider. Have you committed to a local church where you can serve Or do you mainly consume church for personal benefit? Is your community group and discipling others a priority in your schedule or just an optional burden you don't have time for? 
Do you initiate conversations and dinners and coffee meetings to invest in others and invite them to how they can serve you? Do you ever say no to weekend travel or arrange your plans so you can attend church with your fellow covenant brothers and sisters? Now most of you are like, yeah, I did that this weekend. Where's everybody else? I'm not talking about isolated instances. I'm talking about as a pattern of life. I'm talking about a pattern of life. And let me encourage you, use those questions as you invest in others. So it shouldn't just be the pastors when, when we notice somebody hasn't been around for a while. It's the pastors who have to go track them down. We as a body should be caring for one another. But again, I praise God for you, Restoration Church. It is a joy to pastor you. Most of us are meaningfully involved in the life of our church, sharing life together. Yes, we have room to grow. We are not perfect. We have room to grow. I don't think we've attained the unity and the full knowledge of Christ. But it is natural and normal for you all to meet up, to point each other to Christ, to share meals together, to celebrate life together, to be vulnerable with your sins and struggles. Praise God for that. Do it all the more. And if it's not you, if you're not a member of this church, and you call yourself a Christian, or you're a member and you've been on the edges, I encourage you to come in. Prioritize gathering with the church family. Serve one another. Regularly meet with others. Point each other to Jesus. We need each other, beloved. 